0: Tonight we're going to basically talk about how to use our Bible study called Search the Scriptures uh, series in three ways. Turn me down just a little bit, please. Um, So, there there are three possible ways you can benefit from what we're going to talk about tonight. Number one, individually, if you can kind of look at your life and say, I really don't value biblical studies enough. Uh, I don't have a lifestyle of studying the Bible regularly, often, thoroughly, uh, exhaustively, completely. If that's not part of who you are in Christ, that's a big problem. That's a huge problem because he is the living word and the Bible is the written word. And Jews and Christians have always become part, have always been called the people of the book and it's clear from the Bible, three times in the book of Hebrews, for instance, it mentions that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Uh, so if you, um, the new covenant could never be anything less than the old covenant. And when you consider that old covenant people, part of, part of what you can get from reading the Old Testament is the times when the people of God really knew the Bible, they did well. And then there were times, remember, uh, we have a Josiah in our midst tonight, running the sound. And Josiah, when he was eight years old, became king. Did, is that what happened to Josiah? No. Uh, <laughs> I think it was a different Josiah, probably. Uh, and uh, and he uh, uh, was, of course, being discipled by a godly priest, and, um, and, and his heart was toward the Lord. And so he ordered repairs in the temple. And in the doing of the repairs in the temple, they came across a copy of the book of Deuteronomy. And they read it and they said, Oh, woe well, is us, because we have no knowledge of the Bible and the Word of God and so forth. And, uh, you know, they, it, it led to a whole move of national repentance. And we're in a similar situation today. We have a situation where increasingly, in, you know, in 1953, John Bright. in in his book, The Kingdom of God, said the reason he was writing this book was because the Protestant movement had been known for its knowledge of Scripture, and today there's a massive not reading of Scripture. Some of the least educated in Scripture people that we have had come to us have had associates and bachelor's degree in Bible study from Bible-believing colleges, yet have, have only known some proof text approaches here and there And have never had kind of this idea that the whole Bible is the word of God. And so it's a crisis. You know, the majority of people who walk in our doors that have come from Bible-believing churches, it's actually been the, the fact that they've grown up in that environment has been more negative than positive in terms of their really coming to Christ. And one of the big issues, besides obviously getting founded on the gospel of grace and being truly converted to the Lordship of Christ and the kingdom of God and so forth, is uh, just a lack of any kind of serious approach to studying his word. So one way you could benefit tonight is just by taking this in, taking some notes. We're going to talk about how to build a hunger for God's word. A second way we can benefit from this tonight is um, if you have a heart to, to lead people through what we call the EPDC that we talked about two weeks ago, evangelism, pastoral care, discipleship continuum, and we are trying to multiply. The whole reason we have a leadership team and we have about... We have 13 people on the leadership team. We have eight people we've talked to about uh, doing certain kinds of studies and growing in certain ways that they could join the leadership team in the next year or two. The reason we need to do this is because we need to multiply the number of people who know how to disciple one person all the way through into maturity and completeness and fullness in Christ. And this, uh, knowing how to use the Search the Scriptures series, can be an important tool in doing in doing just that. I would say the two most important foundational tools, well let's even say 3, the, the 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 top 3 four even maybe let's say that you could work on would be one this whole search the scriptures idea. We you know, you will find many 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 evangelicals who have it in their mind and heart that the Bible is the word of God. And it, if you do it graciously and wisely, it resonates with them, kind of early on. Yeah, I don't really know the Bible, and I ought to. And sometimes they'll respond rather quickly to that. Beth was an example of that. She she knew the Bible, but then she didn't. But she knew didn't know the Bible in as systematically and comprehensively, in major themes approach. And it it kind of revolutionized her life to to think like that, even though she knew. She actually took the Bible quite seriously and had thousands of notes and everything. She, you know, she just needed a, one, one other piece to the puzzle. And uh, but others, we've had guys that it's taken us one, two, three, four, five years to see them converted to taking the Bible seriously. And that they know almost no Bible. So that's a second thing you can you can use this search the scripture series to, to serve people, to help people. Uh, Some people have grown up in very good, even Bob Timer's testimony. I'm I'm actually going to try to get Bob to record a small one, two, three minute testimony this summer. Uh, Part of his testimony really is that he grew up in a church that takes the Bible very seriously. He'd heard the whole Bible taught. Most of the people in his church took that seriously. It had just never came to him. In other words, that hadn't become part of his core values and his way of life as much as it should have been. And, it, and the Search of Scripture series had a lot to do with that happening. So, um, and that, that happens all the time in churches. Like, you know, we have uh, people who catch right on to why they should study the Bible more and why they should listen to podcasts and why they should read this uh, foundational books and in the, in the intermediate books, because the intermediate books will give you more of a how-to-study-the-Bible paradigm shifts and so forth. We have people who catch on to that kind of thing right away. And we have people who uh, it takes a long time for that to break through. I don't know the mysteries of all the reasons why. So that's a second way. Thirdly, uh, is for anyone who's going to lead one of our campus ministries or home group or whatever, you might want to consider, especially if there's a number of people that you're ministering to who have it in their mind and heart that the Bible is the infallible inerrant perfect word of God, yet they've never thought about the, the idea of studying all scripture to look at the, all the themes of scripture and look at all of what God's saying and look at it as one unified whole uh, and, you know, uh, based in the lordship of Jesus Christ, the king of the kingdom, and that God is establishing a kingdom in the earth by making covenants with his people and so forth. And, and they've never considered some of the major themes of Scripture like we cover in chapter 3 of the Kingdom of God series for about 12 different, we, we cover like 12 different of the major themes of Scripture in chapter 3 of the Kingdom of God series. And until you start to look at Scripture in terms of reading whole books and understanding major themes, all you really have is your preconceived ideas that you're putting proof text on. And you really got to let the Bible it define itself by knowing the whole Bible. That's so huge. So that's the third way you can benefit from this. Now, before we get started on all that, I just want to talk uh, to you about where we're going and where we've been. Two weeks ago, we had a message on um, working with the heart of people that you're working with working with your own heart. Again, you can benefit by working with your own heart, working with some individual you're starting with, or if you're leading any group. Because, you know, the Bible says watch over your heart with all diligence, out of it flows the things of life. And if you look at the parable of the, king, of the sower and the seed in Matthew 13, which we did, it really is the parable of hearts, or the parable of the soil. And the soil is the heart of each individual hearing it. And it's the heart of a collective people. And the issue was that three of the four hearts that the word of God came to under-evaluated its importance. And so the, the parable is not saying that you should just farm the way the farmer in the parable is farming, where you indiscriminately throw the seed. That's an effect to, on one level what happens in the world. The gospel just goes out uh, to what kind of hearts we know not. But when you have the opportunity to make relationship with someone, any good farmer works with the quality of his soil. There would be no farmer in the history of man, if you go back to when about 3500 B.C., 500 years or so after Adam, when we start to have documents and records of various civilizations popping up and and there's things that can be read, all civilizations of all time have always dealt with the quality of the soil as part of farming. And so um, one thing I would really encourage you to do is use the teaching from two weeks ago as a major thing in your thinking. I actually can't think of any more important subject, at least in terms of helping one individual move forward in Christ. Now, let me tell you something about teachings. There are issues in teachings like how well it was presented, how well it was organized, does it, is it understandable at this education level or that education level? Uh, what style there was, some people like this kind of style and that kind of style. And one of the things that we have in America today is most people have been, um, because of the entertainment industry, most people have been kind of uh, formed by or discipled by or become uh, accustomed to being able to hear a certain kind of style and not care so much about what's the actual content. So the thing I want to say about two weeks ago is I did that message having thought about it throughout the day with no notes. I don't know if it was the best organized message. So you have to, you know, like what I'm encouraging you to do is look past that and work through to what actually is said and make that a major part of your thinking, a major part. Like working with people's hearts that they evaluate Christ, his kingdom, his people, his word, his spirit, that they evaluate these things as the most important part of their day every day so that they really are converted into what the Bible calls followers of Christ is, a, is the number one issue you can work with. And, of course, the gospel is, is central to, the, to how you work with, with hearts. Does that make sense? And if you can get away from the instantaneous sinner's prayer view of conversion— and get back to a more biblical view of conversion, you may be working with someone weeks, months, or years uh, to see them converted to, to, uh, to the reality of, of the real starting points of the kingdom of God. And that's unfortunately where we're at in, in, our, in our culture of spiritual confusion, our culture of entertainment, our culture of shallowness, our culture that doesn't read. Sometimes when people don't read the Bible, it, I, I I don't know this for sure, but I'm pretty sure if you look at the, what the scripture has to say about reading the scripture, it's a major sign of whether a person's a, a real or a false convert, whether they're hungry to read the Bible and inconsistently re- read it or not. So it's alarming that we have so much non-reading of the Bible in the church today. However, my hope is that there's an additional issue in that we're just a culture that doesn't read and is not very disciplined, and so even people who really have something going on with their heart toward God just don't make that transition to to uh, become readers and studiers and love God with all their mind, as well as you know, their heart, soul, and strength. And so my hope is is that uh, as we it, it does seem like there's been fruit over the years. As we continue to always talk about, somebody accused me once. They said, Greg is always, every message, he gets into why we should read the Bible. And uh, someone was upset about that. And so Jason Hale, one of our wonderful elders, said, uh, said uh, well, he'll probably stop talking about it when we don't need to hear it anymore. <laughs> and I said, well, thank you, Jason. A good point. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so... For what it's worth, I don't know. I haven't gone back and thought, listened to the teaching and thought about it. I can't stand listening to my own voice and listening. To, I never go back and listen to my own podcast, which I probably should sometimes and study my speaking style. But I did do it without notes, it just out of my thoughts. So it's possible it's not the best organized teaching, but it's not possible that it's not one of the most important things you could think about. And so I'd really encourage you to make sure you listen to the, the one from two weeks ago. And get put some major thought into it. All right, so with that in mind, let's get into this search the scriptures series. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the titles first of all. This the series comes from John five thirty nine, where Jesus is talking to the religious leaders that are rejecting him, uh, the whore of Babylon, as Revelation calls them, uh, the Jerusalem leaders uh, in who, you know, he came to his own people, John 1, and his own people did not receive him. And so um, he's talking to them and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me. And then he goes on to say, and you are unwilling to come to me. And the truth of the matter is anyone who comes to Christ comes to the scriptures. They're inseparable. If someone is really coming to Christ, they're really coming to serious study of God's word and meditation on it, reflection, repentance before it. It is a major delivery system of the grace of Jesus Christ. And uh, so Jesus is making that clear. The scriptures testify or bear witness to him. Anyone who wants, who has it in their heart, when you are born again, when you're converted, God gives you a new heart that wants to know, love, serve, and be intimate with God. And anyone who has that is hungry to study the Bible as much as a newborn babe is hungry to nurse. And that, um, what a problem that we should have more often, to be honest, if, if we weren't in such a spirit of religious confusion and com- complacency, and worldly idolatry and all the things plaguing the church today, a problem you should have pastorally is you may need to talk to young Christians about, um, you know, I know you love studying the Bible for so many hours, but you do need to get good grades in school too. Or something like that. Or, I know you really love studying the things of God and so forth, but you do need to go to work on time. <laughs> you know uh, And you could you know, like you can find ways to listen to the Word on the way to work, in the car and in the shower, and uh, you can put scriptures on your dashboard and in your bathroom and, <laughs> and all this kind of thing. but you really, you know, God has called you to live the word. And so you can't study it all the time, every day. We should be having to have talks like that with people. Now, I've had the privilege of having had a few people in my life that I've had to talk to like that. But uh, that has not happened that much in the last 20 years, and that's because of just all the cultural changes that have gone on. But really, that's the case. So let's look at this Search the Scripture series. Um, All through the Bible... The Bible talks about the Bible. So, and the Bible interprets the Bible. And you study what's called hermeneutics, the science of how to interpret the Bible. The two most important principles is that the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. The second is that the Bible interprets the Bible. And so you have to know the whole Bible to interpret any of the Bible. So, those are really important principles. Now, that doesn't mean when you're first reading the Bible, you won't get true understanding from it. There's a doctrine called the clarity of Scripture, which basically says this. When a person's heart is being drawn to the kingdom by God, or if it has been drawn and they have repented and been born again, they will get, God will speak to them as they read the Scripture. And he will speak true things to them. However, until they study and study and study, they will still have a mixture of insights they get and insights they miss, which, unfortunately, insights they miss also translate often into wrong ideas that they're carrying. So, the scripture always yields more and more clarity, more and more truth, more and more wisdom as you continue to delve into it more and more and more, and especially as you do comprehensively. And that's what we're after. We want to use the Search the Scripture series as a service, especially to Bible-believing Christians who have been indoctrinated that the Bible is inerrant and infallible, but somehow have had a disconnect that I actually ought to study it all. And so 2 Timothy 3, 16 becomes a huge verse at the start of this. All scripture is inspired by God. And an even more important verse in a way, uh, they're, well, they're complementary. Psalm uh, 119, verse 160, the sum of thy word is truth. Because a sum is, is, is arrived at by, a, by adding a series of numbers together. And so, you know... Uh, Ohio State beat Notre Dame forty-two to twenty-eight in the Fiesta Bowl on January first, so two thousand sixteen. So if you start taking away uh, the six touchdowns that add up to forty-two, you won't have forty-two. <laughs> if you say, "Well, let's just give them three of the touchdowns," well, that would be twenty-one, and they would have lost the game. So. Sums are, you know, the, the idea of Scripture is that the sum of the word is the truth. So if you have parts of the word you don't understand and you haven't studied, then you're actually missing the sum, which is missing the truth. You're not seeing what the Scripture is really saying. And this is the, this is the foundation of so much wrong thinking in, in, in the church today. So that's what you really want to serve people with with the Search the Scripture series is you want to help them come to a not just more time spent studying the Bible, but the idea of reading whole books, looking for major themes, understanding the Bible in terms of whole sections. Does that make sense? So one tool, by the way, that you can use in terms of major themes is on our podcast when we were doing... The Kingdom of God series, we only got through the first three chapters, but chapter three is called Major Themes of Scriptures, and there's 12 messages about major themes of Scripture. And if you have those ideas, you'll get ten times more out of your Bible reading. So, now, the way this is set up is if you look at the title page, there are six major sections or of, of topics. Each topic, as much as possible, I've tried to make each topic as much as possible a unit in itself. So that if somebody jumps in, when you're dealing with, say, the fourth topic, major themes of Scripture, they'd still get a ton out of it, even if they haven't heard the first three parts. I hope that makes sense. Or if they jump in and part five, an introductory survey of the Old Testament, they would get a ton out of it, especially since most churches ignore the Old Testament pretty much today. So keep that in mind. Then within that concept, I try as much as possible to make each study a topic in itself so that if they just heard that one topic, they'd still get a lot out of it. So with that in mind, uh, what I want to do, you can see the six topics there. and I really just want to get uh, tonight go through, I'm a little hard-pressed which to do first. Let's go through what the six topics are. The first one is kind of introductory, and it's called Taking Bible Study to a Fruitful Level. The reason I choose the word fruitful is it's not just about reading the Bible more. I use the example of one of my favorite people in the whole world, Beth Careyuki, who's looking beautiful in her, whatever month of pregnancy she's in, whether you're growing at fifth month, she's starting to have that beautiful pregnant look. And uh, so, uh, I wonder if I should put this on the podcast. Yeah, I will. Uh it's, <laughs> it's a great, it's a great uh, chapter in every marriage because here's what exactly happens. Um, so the husband uh, is is about to come into some of his most useful ministry in, in the entire marriage. Because here's what happens. A woman becomes like really, really beautiful as the pregnancy progresses. And it's just part of the whole mystery of God and birth and creation and recreation and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, however, right around month seven, eight, nine, she doesn't start feeling that beautiful (laughs) anymore. And, and so like, there's a, there's this gap between the reality of what is and the reality of what she feels. And that's, we, that's the essence of our entire Christian life. All of us have this gap in, in, in the reality of who God is, what his word says and who we are in Christ and so forth and what we feel like. And that's why we struggle with condemnation and fears and, and so forth. And actually closing that gap progressively is what sanctification and maturation are all about. So it's a wonderful time for the husband to basically help his wife understand the actual reality of things is you're wonderfully beautiful at this time even though you don't feel like it. <laughs> so anyway, there's that's no extra charge. Let's get back to the message. But <laughs> uh, all you single guys can keep that in your, you know, like Mary pondered all these things in their, her heart and treasured them up. You can keep them for your future. All right, so uh, back to uh, using the search of scripture. So the first topic, which is uh, chapters one through four, but there's some A's and B's in there, is all about kind of helping people get an orientation to why not only the scripture is more important than they've evaluated up till now, but the whole scripture is more important. Does that make sense? Secondly, building a framework for understanding and interpreting the scriptures. If you get into studying, uh, say, the history of the church, one of the things you'll see is that uh, we talk a lot about this at Grace Christian Fellowship, but after the American Civil War, approximately the 1870s, there about to the 1890s, there became a, uh, a time in, in Protestantism which there was a battle between what was called the fundamentalist moder- modernist controversy. Modernists were people who embraced two ideas, Darwinism and evolution, and with that, an anti-supernaturalism. And they embrace, They took that anti-supernaturalism and also put it on the way the Bible uh, was given to us. And they began to doubt what the ancient scribes had taught that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. They began to doubt the authors and the truth and the authenticity and especially the historical accuracy. And they began to raise things like, well, it's not scientifically accurate and so forth. And that was a movement called higher criticism, and that developed what was called the modernist Protestant churches, and much of Roman Catholicism went after the modernist viewpoint. And those became what were known as the liberal Christians, and and they uh, kind of did away with dealing with the gospel because they didn't see man as fallen and needing a redeemer and so forth. They just saw uh, they began to be concerned about social welfare issues and basically went back to a kind of a, save people through government and through institutions in a humanistic faction the fundamentalists reacted against that and tried to hold out to the word originally is not a bad word it's just people who believed in certain fundamental ideas of the christian faith but it kind of degenerated into the uh, embracing more and more the ideas of the pharisees and less and less the ideas of historical christianity And so, um, in itself, fundamentalism began to embrace some interpretive principles that that are called pietism, antinomianism, dispensationalism, and what's called dispensational premillennialism, and so forth, all of which, if you hang around Grace Christian Fellowship enough, you'll eventually know what all that means. And it will help you understand better, have better glasses to interpret Scripture out of. So when, when you come to a text, everyone brings preconceived ideas to whatever you're reading, whether you're reading poems or listening to music or whatever words you're considering. You're bringing a certain amount of ideas that, uh, and framework to that. The second area is really um, uh, trying to help people build a framework for understanding and interpreting the scriptures. The third area is an introduction to the concept of paradigms. A paradigms is two ten-cent pieces. A pair of dimes. No. (laughs) No. (laughs) No extra charge for that bad humor. In fact, I might have to pay you. But uh, (laughs) you you owe me for making me listen to that bad joke. But... um, a paradigm is a set of assumptions held by any academic community. And what, uh, that is true of evangelicals, that is true of Catholics, that is true of any branch of the church. It has certain assumptions about the scripture, who God is, truth, reality, that you bring to the text. And so understanding the presuppositional or the foundational ideas of your paradigm is absolutely essential. Even if your paradigm's right, you won't get much out of it if you don't understand what the assumptions of it are. And so things like biblical inerrancy and and how to build a biblical worldview and how to see the world through God's eyes and so forth, all of these are very important. Uh, the fourth topic is called Major Themes of Scripture. We've talked about that a little bit already. And if you want to go there... Again, li- just listen to the Kingdom of God series chapter 3 which is 12 messages on our podcast under what's called uh, Sunday School section of the podcast and um, email Stephen Leopold for or Deanna Brown for the outlines. Don't email me. <laughs> Stephen will send them to you. and uh, Or Nathan Hager will. Uh, so um and and we are we are actually actively rebuilding the website so that the outlines will actually be on the website with the podcast uh something that I've always wanted from the beginning anyway so next is an introductory survey of the old testament and then finally an introductory survey of the new testament and I have extensive notes on the introductory survey of the new testament especially uh that you can get off of uh you can get those from Stephen as well so let's go back and go through topic number one, taking the Bible study to a fruitful level. Part one is the Bible on the importance of Bible study. And again, use this three ways for your own growth to help one other individual or to help a small group that you're trying to build on. So the first thing is just what I call tips to getting started and growing our hunger to read and study God's word. Again, we've dealt with this over and over and over again. But for some reason, there's a disconnect going on where supposed Christians who don't show much evidence of being converted to, in many cases, we run into people who show evidence of being converted to Christ, but they still don't read the Bible. Or at least not more than just little devotion nets, and therefore they're bringing forth the fruit of raisin nets. You know, they're uh, dry... They have many misinformed ideas. Uh, they're not on fire. They're bound up with insecurities or shyness, or you know, they're just not who God wants to set them free to be. You know, they're, they're not a part. They're not part of a world. You don't like meet them and go, "Wow, that's a world conquering force." I just talked to. <laughs> that's what you should come away with when you talk to a Christian. Like, wow, this person is. Like, awesome. (laughs) They're going to change the world. Uh, They're a threat to the social order. (laughs) They are the new social order. Uh, (laughs) Whatever. So, tips to getting started. Uh, Number one, there's an importance to setting goals. And you'll see that when we get to tonight, when we get to uh, chapter four, we're going to look at the a a whole teaching on setting annual Bible study goals. So that's one thing you might talk to people individually about. You might jump right to chapter 4 and say, let's talk about the idea, like, do you have Bible reading goals, and do you have a realistic plan to, to enter into those goals? Number two, make sure they understand the major sections of the Bible, which I'm about to take some time to give you, okay? Now, they should be able to do it. I'm going to walk away from the podium so you can just, not to show off, but just to see, anybody should be able to do this if they've been a Christian more than a few weeks, really. One year at the max. Like, they, you should teach someone this in the first year you're discipling them and, and hold them accountable to be able to give it back to you without having to look at their notes. And it's as simple as this. The Bible exists in an Old Covenant and a New Covenant. The Old Covenant, you don't really have to go into this necessarily right away, but the Old Covenant should really be called the Hebrew Scriptures because what we think of as the Old Covenant started in Exodus 19, 70 chapters into, the, into what we call the Old covenant. So more accurately, there are the Hebrew scriptures that, it, that are from Genesis to Malachi, the 39 books that the church has always accepted as the word of God. By the way, where that came from, around 90 BC, uh, a group of scribes uh, of Israel basically said there started to be some competing books to the 39 books that the, the Israelites had always accepted because there began to be what's called apocryphal books that began to emerge So a council was held, and the thirty-nine books that we have today were decided upon as the Word of God. Jesus and the apostles accepted those thirty-nine books, and that became the practice of the early church. Okay, now at after the Reformation, there, there was what was called the Counter Reformation. And approximately 1542, you can check the dates. I'm not always perfect on remembering dates out of my head. There was what's called the Council of Trent, which was kind of the Catholic Church, how do we respond to the Protestant Reformation? And they added six books to the Old Testament at that time called the Apocrypha. Most of those books deal with the time between Malachi and Matthew. Malachi was written approximately 396 to 392 B.C., approximately, uh, or 396 B.C. it was written, approximately 392 years before the birth of Christ, because Christ was born about 4 B.C. So uh, Christ entered his public ministry about 26 B.C. So really, between, and in the, in the first Gospels were written in the 40s uh, A.D., I said B.C., Christ, around 26 A.D. So really, there's... Um, there's 430 approximate years between Malachi and the writing of the New Testament books getting started. Okay, now that's an amazing period of time. If you think about it, uh, you know Jamestown was colonized in 1607, Plymouth Rock was 1620, so we're coming up on the uh, on 500 years since the the founding of of Plymouth Rock. In five five years from now, we'll celebrate the 500th anniversary. So, 430 years is a pretty significant amount of time. It's approximately the, the length of the book of Joshua. In the book of I should I'm, I meant to say the book of Judges, um, and Judges is a very similar book to America's history because Judges is all about how a godly covenant people uh, backslid over a 400 year period. That's the history of America in a nutshell. <laughs> And um, so you need to understand that there's those two sections of Scripture. Then break it down from there. The Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures breaks down into four sections, the f- which have some subsections. So the first section is called the Pentateuch, which is Greek for five books. It's also called the Books of Moses or the Law of Moses. And it's referred to as the law in the scripture or Moses, you know, in Luke 24, twice, Jesus talks about how, uh, all the scriptures, including Moses and the prophets and the Psalms testify about him, right? So those five books are the foundation of the entire Bible. You'll hear modernist Christians who, especially if they've been affected by dispensationalism and antinomianism and uh, these kind of ideas, go, oh, I just have such a hard time reading. And they'll list some of those books, especially Leviticus and, I don't know, sometimes all of them. That shows they don't understand the, the basic ideas of Christianity at all because there is no Christianity apart from those. Jesus quoted extensively from the Old Testament And from Deuteronomy more than any other book. Three times in the wilderness, he answered the temptations of Lucifer or Satan by quoting from Deuteronomy. So he knew it verbatim enough to quote it. And he's supposed to be our pattern or our model. Like one of the first ideas of Christianity is we're followers of Jesus. <laughs> we live like he lived. We study like he did. We think like he thinks. And so forth. We have the mission he had. And if we don't know the scriptures he knew, how could we do how can we know him? So those are called the law or the books of Moses. They are historically accurate books. That's important to know. Jesus quoted from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in such a way that he was clearly stating that they were literal, accurate history. Now, unlike fundamentalists, though, that does not mean that they don't have a story to tell or a narrative. One of the divisions that happened between the fundamentalists and the modernists was the modernists said, oh, it's about the narrative or the stories, it's not about whether it's historically accurate or not. And the fundamentalists, instead of responding how the church would have responded in the first thousand years or so of the church, came up with a whole new modernist way themselves of responding and said, no, it's literal, but it's not literary. So it's historically accurate, but we can't read any stories into it. God's not trying to say anything in the actual biographies and in the development of histories and so forth. He's only saying something in the didactic parts. We've talked a lot about what didactic means. And that's just not so. You have to know allegory and metaphor and simile and word pictures. And you have to know Christophanies and types. And you have to understand that the Bible has historically accurate storytelling. And that God is sovereign above all time. He has an eternal decree and he works in history in such a way that he tells his story through the events and the characters of history. We know a lot about who he is by how he deals with Israel. That's what I call knowing God's ways. I always tell people, pray that you'll know God. Pray that you'll know his law. Pray that you'll know his priorities. Pray that you'll know his agenda and his purposes. And pray that you'll know his ways. How does God take the lost humanity redeem us, re- recreate us, disciple us and make us a part of a people of God that's going to change the world and bring salt and light to the whole earth and be the city set on a hill. That's the ways of God. And you can learn a lot about the ways of God by studying things like how did he work with Job or Gideon? I like I actually like to call certain people I'll always say, call certain people mighty and powerful, this or that person, uh, because the angel said to to Gideon, oh, thou mighty man of valor. So I'll sometimes go, the great and powerful, I like to especially call Anvesh, the great and powerful Anvesh. And uh, because I'm prophesying to him. I'm not just kidding around. I am a little kidding around. But mostly uh, just I'm prophesying his destiny. So that's the Pentateuch. Next is the books that they call the historical books. Now, this is a very, very important point. Do not miss this next point. I'm wait for Beth to finish talking to Edwin, so he should, i got to make sure you don't. That's okay, but I want to make sure you don't miss this. Many of the sections of the Bible are mislabeled, so you need to understand that and label them correctly. So the, what's called, from Joshua to Esther, you'll often hear called the 12 historical books. They are the 12 other historical books. Because Genesis through Deuteronomy are the first five historical books. That is huge. Because even among many fundamentalists and conservatives, they give away the ground that the, the, the first five books aren't historically accurate. And if you have, don't have that, you've got nothing. So those are the other historical books. And they divide into two sections. Joshua starts where Deuteronomy leaves off with the death of Moses and God rising up his disciple, Joshua, who he had discipled 40 years to be his successor and to cross from the wilderness into the land that was promised Abraham. That's where Joshua begins. The first five chapters of Joshua have a lot of stuff about why you should need to daily meditate on the scriptures and why, in uh, and, 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 uh, what God's calling you to as a leader in your family, in the church, in your place of business. So, uh, Joshua is about the, the taking of the land. It has a lot to do with things that we're up against today. They don't completely take the land. So Israel gets into this history from there on, where they got one foot in the world, and one foot in the kingdom, and they got enemies in their midst. And, and the Bible makes it clear that He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Psalm one ten that we talked about Sunday. The Lord said to my right hand, sit at my right. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We, he's not going to take us out of the enemies. We have to learn to live and reign and take dominion with in, a, in an atmosphere with our enemies all around us. And some of the enemies are our own sin nature within us. So um, Joshua is huge for that. And then the Bible basically takes us through the history of God's dealings with Israel uh, because God always deals with a, his, his agenda is to have a people who export his glory and his manifest. Uh, presence to the whole earth to explore his ways his law his way of life and fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God and and uh and he does that by making covenant with people first the eternal covenant the the adamic covenant the Noah covenant the abrahamic covenant the mosaic covenant and through the mosaic covenant and so forth uh Joshua through Esther is a history of God's dealings through that covenant with his people. Who are supposed to be bring his kingdom to the whole earth and continually don't do that. And those 12 books break down into two sections. The first nine are when God is continually calling them back to repentance but he has not expelled them from the land yet. He has not fulfilled the promises of Deuteronomy 28 that if they don't obey they will have all these curses come upon them. So there are some judgments against them, but they are primarily military judgments uh, but more foundationally, weather judgments and economic judgments. God always has progressive judgment. Weather and economic things lead to eventually military conquest. But up until 722 BC, Israel had not been conquered. Now they come under the influence of other kingdoms, and they make bad alliances. And there, it's clear that they're there be—it's very similar to our situation today, where our country is incl- in increasingly a debtor nation, and we increasingly uh, can't win any wars. We just get bogged down in them because we have—we don't have any clear agenda, or we don't even know what we're doing. And and Israel can does this more and more and more. And so they're making one, you know, one chapter they'll make a covenant with Egypt to protect them from Assyria and so forth, and they're they're progressively compromised. But that leads up to the the exile of of the people of God, which of course have, part of the story is the is, is after Solomon Israel is divided into two kingdoms: the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom is conquered in 722 BC, and the southern kingdom in 586 BC. So Judah exists uh, for another 136 years after Israel goes into exile. Now, the la- the second section of those twelve books is Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Those are the three books written after the exile. They're called post-exilic or post-exile books. So Esther happens when they're in captivity. And it's actually God's dealings with Israel when they're in another nation altogether. Ezra and Nehemiah are about are very, very important books to us because they're about the fact that God prophesied a restoration of his people And a small group, approximately 3% of the Jews, uh, hear the word of God, follow the scriptures, and go back to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. You'll find that any pioneering movement in the history of God, very few people will get it. But generations later, there will be many um, beneficiaries of that movement. If you study the history of, of Arbor Church and, what, and the denomination they came out of, there's such a story. They were spiritual pioneers, with, you know, with the Baptist Confession of 1689 is it, and so forth. And most of the church didn't get the importance of what they were doing. But all the church has benefited from what they've done over the centuries. So That's huge. And that's what you can get from reading Ezra and Nehemiah. They're books of restoration. And they're they're so important to what we're doing. One of my favorite verses of all time, Ezra 7.10. Ezra is a priest, and it says that Ezra had set his heart. In other words, he determined resolutely nothing was going to knock him off of this. He had set his heart to study the law of God to practice it, and to teach it in Israel. Now, if that's not a life verse you can rally your life around, I don't know what is. Now, um, I'm gonna, the next section of the books is called the wisdom or poetry books. We're going to come back to that because I'm going to talk about the prophets first. The last section of the Old Testament is called the prophets. And in itself divides into two sections, the section second section of which divides into two sections. So uh, the five major prophets are called are called Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel. Now that's only I just listed four guys because I didn't list lamentations, but lamentations is written by Jeremiah. So there's actually four major prophets. Who write five books called the Major Prophets, Jeremiah or Lamentations, which is only five chapters, is considered part of the Major Prophets because it's written by a Major Prophet, Jeremiah. And Lamentations is a really, really, really important book because it's it's uh, it's something that I've seen uh, come upon Beth. Picking on Beth tonight many times is this burden of weeping over the state of the people of God in our day in longing to see God restore his people. If that that has got to become the passion of your life, you have to ask God to make that who you are, that you weep over the loss, that you weep over the condition of the church, that your zealous zeal for thy house has consumed me. That has to become who you are. And Lamentations is all about that. The people of God have gone into exile. They're under the wrath in in the chastisement of God. But God in his covenant doesn't chastise under condemnation. He's chastising them with the hopes of restoring them. And that's exactly where most of the church is living today. you'll see over the next generation or two Christians wake up more and more and more to like our Christianity is not Christian. That's why our children are not staying in the faith as they grow up. That's why every every church is getting less zealous over time and more compromised and less knowledgeable and and they can talk about how they were on fire in the 1800s but they're that's just not how they are today. And that's almost that's that is so Matt, massive today that there's not enough exceptions to it. Would that there were lots more exceptions. There are some, and then you have all kinds of churches that have zeal but no knowledge or wisdom, and you have churches with knowledge and wisdom with no zeal, and, and it's it's a mess. and And God wants you to be burdened for that, and He wants you to be pioneering out of that, and taking as many with you as possible. It's like we're, you know, we're going with Ezra and Nehemiah. Don't you want? I want to convince you that you should come with us. <laughs> That's really kind of what we're trying to do. So in the prophets, there's those five major prophets. Then there are twelve minor prophets. Now they're not less important; they're just shorter. One of the things, the key, there's two, two things I want to give you about the minor prophets because we can only cover so much tonight. The one thing you should know about the minor prophets is that there are 12 of them, just like there are 12 other historical books, and, and they overlap. So at the beginning of each of the minor prophets, it'll talk about how Joel prophesied in such and such a time period, and it'll list the kings of Israel or Judah that were the king's. So go back and correlate that to the historical books, so you understand the context they're prophesying in. Because they're not saying weird things about the end times, so that TV preachers can make lots of money by saying crazy stuff late at night and, and sending for their pre, premillennial dispensational nonsense books. That's not what they're 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 actually prophesying in a real historical context about real historical things. It's not about Russian helicopters or, or some nonsense like this. Uh, so that's huge. So the minor prophets correlate them to, to who their message is. And you'll see some major themes in the prophets. One is God is calling them back to... The, the prophets are not about the future they're about calling people back to covenant faithfulness to the law of God and to the and out of their spiritual adulteries and, and their spiritual compromise into living the first commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There shall have no other gods besides me, no graven images, and honor the Sabbath day and, and all this. They're calling the people back to covenant faithfulness and their warning of impending judgment if you're not faithful. And God, uh, if, if you are destined for salvation, God's judgments will be chastisements unto repentance. But don't take, presume upon the grace of God and just be a knucklehead. Be on fire for God. There is no such thing as a Christian who's not on fire for God. In either chapter, or either section of the Bible, I mean, Hebrew scriptures or new scriptures a real Christian it is all of God consumes their life all the time anything less is idolatry and adultery that's what the prophets are about and they're about warnings of chastisement if you if you don't make Yahweh your covenant lord and if you're not in love with him and if your lifestyle doesn't back that up Now, the next point I want to make about the minor prophets is they divide into nine and three, just like the 12 historical books. Nine books before the exile and three books after the exile. So Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are prophesying at the time of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther that's why if i lots of times i'll read half of the old testament in a year i always read the 12 historical books with the 12 minor or with the, with the prophets major and minor because they they overlap in terms of when they're happening and what they're about so you want to make sure you help people so right there you've given People, a lot of framework, but we skipped the wisdom literature. So let's talk about that real quick. Hopefully everybody, is there anybody here that, is, is this a little new to some people? I would imagine it is. That this must, this must not be. Like this cannot be new to you. This is like what you're supposed to teach a person their first year of being a Christian. They, this is how you get them oriented to, to starting to read the Bible. You should give this to every new believer. And that, that's your responsibility. You're supposed to know enough about this to take a young Christian through it. We, you know, That's how we break down this clergy lady nonsense. You're supposed to be able to disciple someone in this stuff. Very important. So we, the, the only part we didn't cover is the five wisdom books or also called poetry books. They are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, it's sometimes called, or canticles in uh, more traditional Bibles. Canticles is just a fancy word for songs. What kind of song? But um, what you need to know about them is the first one is Job, and I never read it when I was a young Christian because I thought it said job. No, no I'm just, that's just an old joke. <laughs> um, Job is interesting because it was probably written by Moses, and it's one of the most historical books of the Old Testament. We don't need to fit it on a CD, so it's okay. Um, uh, so oh, we can't go into that in that much detail. Job is a great book about the dealings of God and the ways of God. <laughs> Psalms. I, I do want you to be able to read Psalms, Proverbs. The rest of it, here's what you need to understand. Hebrew poetry Is the only poetry in the whole world that's translatable without losing its beauty to every language. As if God knew that He was going to export His word to the whole world. Oh, gee, I think He did. (laughs) As if He planned ahead. And the reason is because most poetry is is based on the rhythm and the rhyme, and. And and, uh, word metaphors and word plays and stuff. And so therefore, it doesn't translate well from one language to another. Hebrew poetry is based on the vividness of the imagery. So it translates well into any language. So like in Proverbs, it says, like the fool that refeats his own folly is the dog, is like a dog that returns to its vomit. Uh, certain brother in our church was sharing about how their dog got sick and did poo-poo all over the house and. And I'm like, "Oh, that's so gross!" And they were saying, "Oh, it was so gross!" And I, and like that's what when you read that proverb, that's what you're supposed to think about. Like a dog, little dogs, they eat their vomit, and it's so gross. And, and you're supposed to go, "Ooh, that's what it's like when I keep doing the same sin all over. It's like eating my own vomit." I should probably quit doing that. (laughs) That's what Jesus means when he says, if you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. There's nothing worse than vomit. I mean, I can deal with blood and poop and... I just can't deal with vomit. Like if somebody vomits, I have to ask for someone to come and pick. I I call John Gray because he can deal with anything. (laughs) John, I need you. Someone vomited. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it's just the grossest thing in the whole universe, and God intends it to be so. And uh, that's what it's like if we keep doing the same sins over and over again. And if we're complacent about the things of God, according to Jesus. So that's, uh, that's one thing about Hebrew poetry is word pictures. The second thing is an idea called couplets or triplets. And a couplet is, uh, is when a verse either restates the thing or states the opposite. So an, again, the same one is a great Couplet. Like the fool that repeats his folly is a dog that returns to his own vomit, or like a dog that returns his own vomit is a fool that repeats his folly, I should say. So it's basically two lines saying the same thing and using a word picture to, to, to illustrate the, like that's what it's like when you keep repeating your folly. So that's kind of, a fool that repeats his folly is kind of a didactic statement is like a dog that returns to his vomit is a word picture statement to emphasize what that didactic statement means. Does everyone get that? So help help a young Christian know that because like you, like how could you not love reading the Psalms and Proverbs? I'm amazed at how little people know Proverbs. Like I used to read Proverbs approximately eight or nine times a year. For many years in my first, and and the reason is because sometimes the couplets will state the opposite. So Proverbs is filled with the wise person does this, and the fool does this. And basically when I was 17 years old and I became a Christian and I read that for the first time, I said, oh my God, I'm like the fool. (laughs) About 90% of the time I was the fool, I'm hoping that now, about 90% of the time, I'm more like the wise man. I'll have to uh, go through Proverbs and keep score. No, but uh, (laughs) hopefully God is helping me do that. But that's why I loved reading it. Because I was a young man who had not walked with God, and I was a fool. Now, we can't say anything like that in our modern day because it's not politically correct. I was what the Bible calls a fool. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And fools don't fear God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. A fool is saying in his heart, I'm going to get away with this sin. This isn't going to cost me. I can continue to do whatever it is that is displeasing to God, and, he, and you can't. You're killing yourself. Don't fool yourself. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you reap, that or sow, that you will also reap. Most of the church is out there shaking their fist at God and their behavior, mocking God with their lifestyle. It can't be so. So there's an introduction to the Old Testament. You know what? Most of you know the New Testament enough. I'll just try to be real quick here. Five historical books are the foundation of the New Testament. Now ironically, each of the writers of the book was in in their own heart and mind was writing a new Pentateuch. But the church decided over time that the five collectively are the new Pentateuch. But Luke and Acts together are like a new Pentateuch in themselves. John is really like a new Pentateuch. Matthew is clearly like a new Pentateuch. Luke is clearly like a new Pentateuch. So our whole faith is based on those five books. A real Christian should be reading the Gospels and the book of Acts over and over and over again. That should be a lifetime way of study. Because your 100th time through Matthew, you'll start to see all kinds of things that you didn't see the first 99 times. And you'll regularly and often have that experience in a lifetime of study of the Gospels in the book of Acts, is well worth it. It will always yield great fruit. Because how can you run out of ways to think more about Christ? Right? Um, Then the next section of the New Testament is the 13 uh, epistles of Paul. And He's sometimes called the Apostle of Grace. Sometimes called the Apostle of the Holy Spirit. Um, he certainly, uh, because of how he was sent out in Acts 13, he lays down really a lot of what's the the pattern for the church. Um, so then, there's nine more books of the uh, of the New Testament. And they are also epistles, an epistle. I used to think when I was about four years old or five years old that an epistle married an apostle. But uh, <laughs> so what do you think when you're in Catholic kindergarten. But uh, <laughs> the apostles were married to the epistles. But uh, no, the apostles wrote the epistles. And uh, the epistles, there's nine more epistles because Revelation is actually an epistle. Now, they divide into sections, um, even as, by the way, Paul's epistles, uh, divide into his church epistles and his pastoral epistles where he's discipling one particular individual namely Timothy, Titus and Philemon. So there's four books of Paul that are his, uh, his kind of discipling one person individual whereas the other nine books are written to churches. So and then of course James, Jude, John, Peter Uh, are the other nine book writers. And uh, and no one knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, The original King James Version basically actually said the the epistle to the Hebrews according to Paul. Uh, But later it became realized that the early church, that was one of the reasons some people debated over Hebrews because no one actually knows who actually wrote it. And one of the criteria the church used uh, was that the author was clearly known to be an apostle or an or a designated disciple of an apostle. So try to all this stuff that I'm saying is stuff that you should teach a new Christian. Revelation is a different kind of epistle, and it's what's called apocryphal literature, and it's just it's it's not about the end times and all that. You, uh, um, no, let's not get into that. You could read a book called The Rapture Trap by Paul Thigpen if you wanted to, but. Um, the whole idea of revelation is that it's it's using biblical symbolism. every line is from the Old Testament, so it's written kind of in a code if you will but it's a code that's easy to understand if you know the whole Old Testament and it has to do with the upcoming uh, the warning of the of the people of God about the upcoming persecutions of the Jews and Nero and the destruction of Jerusalem and all that kind of stuff. Now, there are ongoing principles that, that look, I'm not going to get into tonight, how to interpret Revelation. Uh, if you want to, I'll talk to you more about that. The, in that book called the, 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 um, the Rapture Trap by Paul Thigpen, he gives five historical views of how to interpret the book of Revelation. So even if you're not going to read the whole book, you could read that chapter. So you understand that there's different ways, but the modern view of it, of it being about the end times and stuff like that, he, he talks about where that came from and why that's kind of crazy. And how it yields a lot of craziness. So, that's uh we're still on on point one B of part one on the Bible on the importance of Bible study. That's a little overview of the table of contents. I take many new Christians through the table of contents of their Bible, I bracket off the sections, and I have them take notes on those things what I just said. That's a very common discipleship meeting that I have with a young Christian. so hopefully you took notes if you didn't take notes listen to the podcast take thorough notes keep it somewhere and and get so accustomed to it that you 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 really should be able if you've been a christian a year you really should be able to do what i just did with any new christian out of your head because if you don't have that you don't really know what you're reading when you're reading the bible that is just a nice little framework to start understanding the bible and you should be able to take a young christian through that what i just covered third part of this grow your hunger now this is huge because we're dealing with situations today where i think i don't know this for sure because it seems like from the scriptures that if you don't abide in christ's word then you're not his true true disciple and so forth and we are dealing sometimes with people who are not really converted but here's what i suspect i suspect that there's people who have been born again and there is life going on and so forth and we're just dealing with a time when character is so bad, and people are so undisciplined, and people are so bound up by, by evil behaviors, especially the, uh, you're, if you're dealing with people under 30, many of them are so addicted to internet pornography that it's captured their whole life. And we have a pretty solid mature person in the Lord in our church that took eight years to break out of that. And it was worth the journey. Uh, unfortunately, um, what happened is many people who are, say, 33, 18 to 33 nowadays, th- uh, because of the way the Internet exploded around the year 2000, many of their parents were, were asleep at the wheel and allowed their kids to become Internet pornography addicted, and it's it's warped their entire life so badly that that I think in some cases they really are a Christian, and they're just having trouble getting getting the ABCs, getting started. And sometimes it's worth the personal discipling, even if it takes a number of years to break them free. And they're not going to break through without a community like ours. Like I'm, like one of the things I don't don't do is I don't work with people who aren't coming on Sundays and are you know and, and don't show up to regular meetings and because it's just not worth it eventually like they they need a whole way of life to break through but with that in mind every appetite can be grown or it can be shrunk your appetite for food sex sleep what you name it music whatever can you can grow it or you can shrink it one of the things that Br- Ray Bradbury, a secularist, pro- prophesied in his book Fahrenheit 451 was that we would come to a culture where everyone was going around with these things on their ears, listening to messages and music all the time. And one of the things you'll find is that if you need, like, if you need music in the background all the time and stuff like that, you'll find that you don't, won't be able to get to know the Spirit of God. Because a major Christian discipline is called Solitude. And it's about getting your spirit right to hear God. And so, um, you know, we're dealing with people sometimes who are have so many hungers in their life for everything else. And these hungers have captivated them. So much that they just have no hunger for God. By the way... Many of you on the leadership team, I've asked them to fast one day a week, and I asked them to reference a particular teaching by John Piper, where he basically postulates, or his thesis is, his idea is, that almost all American Bible teachers say that we don't fast in our day, because we're too lazy, and we're too undisciplined, and fasting is not fashionable. He says that we don't fast, because we're just not hungry enough for God. And... Other hungers, as Matthew 13 brought out in our teaching two weeks ago, the, 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 the word is choked by the hunger for other things, by the desire for other things. So when people have hungers that are really strong in their life for irrelevant music, uh, irrelevant social media, irrelevant or, or not just irrelevant, but damaging pornography or whatever, they need to go through a process of growing a hunger for God. And you need to disciple them in that process. And they, one of the keys that I always tell people is try to monitor whether you're trying harder than them. You can't, hey Sam, would you find me a bottle of water, which there may be one in my study or downstairs. You can't help somebody grow uh, if, they're, if, if you care about it more than they care about it. Like when I'm discipling someone, I'll give them certain assignments and so forth, and I'll kind of monitor over time if they're starting to put some effort. Because if they don't, you can't help them if they don't care. Violent men enter the kingdom of God. They've got to develop something from God that they want God. You look at how many times the Bible says they were devoted to this, the apostles teaching the breaking of bread, devote yourself to prayer and so forth keep alert if you if you if their hunger for the things of god you know i had a kind of a breakthrough with perhaps the most messed up person we've ever worked with i don't know there's so many it's hard to say it's starting with me like i'm in the top five or so of the most messed up people we've ever worked with but uh and i basically said you know I'm not going to have someone in the church disciple you and help you or even help you with practical things if you can't at least get your church self to church by 9:15 every Sunday morning and uh, and don't be late and quit leave, quit you know and pay attention to the messages.'ve you, you've got you've got to look for some sign of life that they're trying you know like seeds will break through concrete to grow. You've got to look for some sign that, they, that, that they're wanting to enter the kingdom of God, that God is drawing them, that they're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And so this thing about a hunger is huge. Every appetite you feed grows in power. So if I'm hungry for food, I can choose to eat really moderately or I can choose to really go like, wow, I'm really hungry, let's dive in. And I can have five pieces of pizza when I should have had one or two. And and if I give in to that five pieces of pizza, it satisfies the hunger then but it guarantees that the next time the hunger comes back it'll be more voracious, more demanding, more addicting, more controlling of me And I can grow every hunger in my life that way for sleep, sex, what you name it even hungers for revenge and unforgiveness and all those things. You can shrink them or you can grow them. And the Christian life is a call to the discipleship of Christ and to grow the right hungers and to crucify and die to the wrong hungers. That's what it means to become a follower of Christ. So what you want to tell people is to get on a Bible study program, go back to point A, set some goals, and keep working with them to keep those goals. Don't set too high of goals, but you can't set too low either. Like, I've started to put some weight back on, sadly. And uh, I'm not gonna overcome that by uh, having uh, skipping the cherry on my hot fudge Sundays. <laughs> That's not gonna be enough to turn that around. Do you understand what I'm saying? So, like, you know, if a person's, you can't really work with someone who's not going to read at least like three chapters of the Bible a day or something. That's kind of a minimum. If, if you read one chapter a day in the New Testament and th- two in the Old, you'll read the whole Testament um, every, uh, you'll read the whole New Testament once a year and the Old Testament every two years. And if you're not doing that, you're not going to make much progress. Beth and Edwin, if you got to go, just make sure you get the podcast and stuff, because I'm going to keep going for a little bit, even though it's late. This is important stuff. I wish I had, had, you know, another week to go through this. So when someone is growing their hunger for the Scriptures, there's a couple things they can do to help, three things. One, set some goals. By the way, a side little issue Find out what Bible they're reading. We deal with that in the chapter 7a, three kinds or philosophies of translations. But if they're reading a King James Bible, talk them out of it. Because unless, usually if they're having trouble studying the Bible, they're probably not someone who reads a lot of Shakespeare and is really well educated. The King James Bible is a wonderful translation with beautiful English. English that almost no one in our day and age is equipped to understand unless they went to a very good private Christian school or something. And they're really a good reader, and they really understand how to read 17th century English and get a lot out of it. For the most part, it keeps people from knowing their Bibles. So get them to read the English Standard Version. If they're not a good reader, it's the most accurate, easy-to-read translation. If they're an excellent reader and a serious Bible student, New American Standard is a little bit more accurate, but it's a little harder to read. New King James is also a high on my list of recommendations. So that's one point. Find out what Bible they're reading. Because I've run into lots and lots of times where people go, I just keep trying to read the Bible, but I can't understand, and I don't get it, and then I quit, and so forth. And it turns out they've been grown up in a church where you only can read the King James Bible and they just they and they just don't have enough. They just don't have enough uh, vocabulary and educational background to get anything out of the King James Bible, which is an excellent translation if you know how to read 17th century English. But languages change over time. A second point here is ask them to memorize some of these scriptures in the Bible on the importance of Bible study, which we're going to get to in a minute. teach them how to use a three-by-five note card and write the words on the front and the reference on the back so that they can use them as a flashcard. And I memorized literally around 3,000 Bible verses that way over the years. I'd carry them around in packs in my pocket. and you, So you can either look at the back, the reference, and go, 2 Timothy 3, 16. And then without looking at it, you go, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for reproof and correction. Then you flip it over and see if you got it right. Or, you know, Stephen's favorite, Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and so forth. So um, get them to read some, to memorize first and foremost Bible verses about the Bible. Because Because that will feed that appetite. And they'll be growing that hunger. And the idea of the there's a reason why David was the youngest brother, and so forth. Because, in uh, course, um, Cain was the oldest brother. Able, often in the Bible, the youngest brother rises up to slay the older brother. You know, Jacob was younger than Esau by a couple minutes. The reason is there's a metaphor there. The new man in Christ is. So, is to rise up and slay the old man in you. And that's called sanctification or maturation in the Christian faith. That new creature in Christ has to kill the old creature. You, if, you, you know, if you don't like reading all the war stories of the Old Testament, hand-to-hand combat and sword, you don't get it because the violent men enter the kingdom of God. There's a person inside you that you got to kill. And what God's t- and he, Christ has already killed it. You've got to enter into the grace of God for him and allow Him to ki- cooperate with His grace to kill it. So you know, there's, you know, you you get this like all this stuff's going on in my life. What's God trying to do? Kill me? Yes, that's the point. <laughs> He's trying to get you to die to I will, I think, I might, I want, I want, I want, me, me, me. (laughs) Like Daffy Duck. Mine, mine, mine. (laughs) And uh, so that's another thing. So memorizing scripture and then just actually praying every day. I pray every day for a hunger for God's word, a thirst for his spirit a desire for intimacy with him, to love what he loves, to hate what he hates. I pray these same prayers every day. I have for 40 years. God, help me know your ways. I have just a basic list. Help me love your word more and more. Help me thirst for your spirit. Help me desire the intimacy of fellowship and and, and not... Not be willing to compromise the intimacy of fellowship with you for any sin or any time out. Help me love what you love. Help me hate what you hate. Don't let your people be ashamed through me, O oh Lord. Let me know your law. Let me know your eternal decree and your kingdom purposes and where you're going and how to, to understand your time in our generation. And let me know your ways, how you go about accomplishing these things. Those are my prayers. That's the only thing I ever pray for myself. (laughs) The rest of my prayers is I pray that kind of thing for you. All right, so now let's go to Roman numeral two, the Bible and the importance of Bible study. All I want to tell you about this is that that all the, the rest of this teaching is actually just cut and pasted scriptures. In most cases, they're from the New American Standard Unless they have brackets after them that say KJV for King James or New King James. And the one you want to point to most is the first one. Is that the theme, you know, they're, they're, these are, the Bible and the importance of the Bible is, re, is by 14 themes. Right? And, or 14 practical results or effects of scripture. And the first theme is... Is that the word of God is about Jesus and the only way you can get to know Jesus is to know the word you can't know Jesus apart from his word. So if a person is born again, they want to know Jesus and they will read the Bible a lot because they hunger to know Jesus. And then you go on to it yields blessings, it's our spiritual sustenance, it's more valuable than gold, and and so forth. See you guys. Thanks for coming. All right, and I'm gonna wrap up in probably about 10 minutes. So um, lastly, on that teaching is Roman numeral three at the at the end of page four. There, if someone is struggling, including yourself, you can do this with one if, if you have a struggle. With evaluating the Bible high enough in your life, if you find basically, gee, I, should, I had five hours of free time today and I read the Bible for 10 minutes, <laughs> that's a problem. You should have read the Bible maybe two or three hours, especially if you're trying to break free and get founded and get started. At the beginning of your Christian life, you need the Bible for hours and hours and hours and hundreds of verses and thousands of verses and whole books and major themes, And if you've never done that, you've got to do that and get get started, get free. That's the foundation. So if you're struggling for that, another thing you can do that's beneficial is read Psalm 119 every month. And here's how you read it. Psalm 119 is what's called an acrostic psalm. There is one section of eight verses for every one of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which translates to 176 verses. Now, if you read one section a day, and you're faithful two out of three days to do it, 22 out of 31 days in a month, or 22 out of 30, you'll read the whole psalm every month. And just use a little tally system, mark it off, and at least read the eight verses of the next section every day, and then go back to the beginning and do it again and every month read Psalm 119 because it's 176 verses that are couplets so whatever 176 plus 176 is 34352 352 lines about the bible and why it's important <laughs> it's all meditations on the bible on the importance of bible that's where i got this stole the idea about the bible on the importance of bible study from from psalm 119 and so if you find yourself not reading the bible enough read the eight verses of the next section of psalm 119 every day and just make it your goal once a month to read psalm 119 and pray over each section and say god help this become the prayer of my heart when the psalmist says oh how i love your law it's my meditation all the day then you pray, God, that's not true of me. I don't love your law like that. And it, it's not my meditation all the day. Change me, save me, make me able to proclaim that like the psalmist proclaimed. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Your words light unto my path. In a, a, a light unto, yeah, my path and a, and a lamp unto my feet and uh, so forth. Psalm 119.105. Did <laughs> uh, I flip them around? Well, the whole, <laughs> uh, you know, anyway, you know, the sum of thy word is true. Psalm 119.160, so forth. So, you know, that's another, that's another thing you can do to grow your hunger for the word. If you don't get that hunger for the word, you'll never get started in the Christian faith. You will stand before God someday, and he will, you won't want to do that. I don't know. You'll, it, um, you know, every parent has this experience. There's kids that you're just, you love them all, but there's some you're just so proud of, and you're like, wow, it's, how could God have given me a kid this great? And then there's some you're so, you know, disturbed by and brokenhearted for. And you don't want, you want to move out of the place where God is grieved over your state of being. And you can't do that without making the Bible your way of life. All right, the next uh, handout here is the Bible on the importance of reading the Old Testament according to the New Testament. This is just a supplement. It's not one of the chapters it goes along with the Bible and the importance of Bible study. But it's just a front and back page of scriptures from the New Testament stating very clearly why you need to read the whole Old Testament. Because that's a major problem you're up against today, is almost no Christians read the, New, the Old Testament. And especially in evangelical circles. Part two, is called, A, is called multifaceted types of knowledge. We're not going to go into that tonight. Uh, it's got about eight or so Greek words uh, for knowledge and how they're used. And it's itself uh, might take, We I think we took two or three weeks and we did that one at Wright State. Uh, part 2B is called, uh, on the Search of Scripture series, is called The Virtues and Pitfalls of Knowledge. Um, and that's uh, a discussion more with some questions because one of the things you'll get a lot of times is, um, as J.P. Moreland in his excellent book called Love God with All Your Mind documents, that part of the fundamentalist modernist controversy was that fundamentalists developed an anti-intellectual bias. And so um, almost all fundamentalists or evangelicals say the Bible is the word of God, but they actually have all kinds of ways of undermining their reading the whole word of God. And so and it's you know a conundrum. It's a puzzle, but um, what you'll find is that any Bible-believing Christian today will have certain objections in his heart and mind about, like, you got to be careful of knowledge. (laughs) And it is never a good policy. Like, when you're in sales, you don't ignore your customer's objection. What you do is you address it clearly, concisely, and hit it head-on, and then you move back onto the positive. But this is actually important that you that you acknowledge there are some pitfalls to knowledge related to in an improper way. If your knowledge be, is not rooted in the fear of God and in biblical inerrancy and infallibility, and if it's not if you're not going to go to the level of understanding theological paradigms and hermeneutics, so that you study the whole Bible. And especially if you're going to allow your knowledge to become a pride trip. That's every person who has a gift in studying the scriptures will deal with pride. And knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Some translations will say love makes it arrogant. But actually, the Greek um, there is... Um, a play on words where it's basically saying knowledge blow knowledge, knowledge is like a hot air balloon. You know, we all we actually use that kind of term now where we say he's full of hot air. Uh you would say that about someone who talks a lot, but they really don't know a lot. Anybody know anybody like that? <laughs> it's called modern culture. Um everyone has an opinion. Now there's less gracious ways of talking about that, but we won't go there. And it's this whole idea that, you know, knowledge has this way of puffing up, but love builds up. Love is actually so knowledge that's rooted in humility, the love of God, intimacy with God, the true gospel, because the true gospel leaves no room for pride. true gospel is that you're a total loser, totally lost, totally conquered by the power of sin and by demons and by the world system and Christ rescued you and is rescuing you and you need his rescue every day and there's no room left for pride. So there are some pitfalls to knowledge and you want to acknowledge that. But Second uh, Peter 1, 2 through 11 is, is on that if you have that outline is a a whole bunch of verses that start with grace and peace be multiplied to you in the true knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and your knowledge, self-control. So you are actually to be always adding knowledge uh, to your Christian faith. That's what the Bible says. All right, five, part three is called Five Approaches to Bible Study. We're we're really late, so I'm just going to say this. Um, I can go through this in more detail with you if, if you've never been through this. But the whole point is all five of these approaches to Bible study have some validity. They all have good points, and they all have negative points. But the re, we list number five is systematic and comprehensive approach based on 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. In Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. What you're trying to do with that Bible study is help them see almost all Christians have used one or more of the other four approaches, but they have not done approach number five, a systematic and comprehensive study of the whole Bible. Almost every Christian you talk to, especially if they're of the millennial generation under 35 years old, will even if they're a serious christian they'll have read a little bit here and a little bit there but they've never read like whole books of the bible nor the whole bible and what you really want to try to do is what i try to do is convince people to in the first 5 or 10 years of their christian life read the new testament 10 or 20 times read the new the old testament 5 or 7 times then zoom in and study characters or study particular areas and passages. Get the background of the whole Bible first as your foundation. And we argue for that at Grace Christian Fellowship every Sunday in both John's teachings and mine. We're trying to convince you that you've got to have that kind of background if you're going to walk with God. And that's really what part three, five approaches to Bible study is designed. So when you're discipling people, Deanna Brown, Try, use this outline to try to help them see that there's some great points about the devotional approach that almost all people use or the topical approach that almost all churches use for teaching. There's great benefit in character studies. However, they all that has limitations as well and they really need the background of a systematic and comprehensive approach. That's the whole point of... Part three, or chapter three of the Search of Scripture series. Chapter four is setting annual Bible study goals. And there's a whole section there in Roman numeral two about seven points about setting goals. Any person you're discipling, you should go through that teaching, the seven points about setting goals. Stephen, got that? Because um, without goals, people, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it. Right? You cannot live life without goals that are written down and that you're reviewing regularly how I'm doing on my goals. If you, if you don't have clearly stated goals that you're clearly making progress on, then you're just a crooked individual. The, the path of least resistance makes both people and rivers crooked. You just do what you feel like doing from hour to hour. That's what an unbeliever does unbelievers live by the the lust of their flesh every day and they don't think long term and even some long uh, unbelievers think long terms in in terms of this life not eternally long term so that's important to help them understand uh the seven points there about setting goals because you can't set your goals too high, you can't set them too low. There's all kind of points about it being challenging but not unrealistic, and stuff that you need to to, to disciple someone in. Uh, next is uh, chapter five a, the primacy of Scripture. By then, you're getting into section two on your on the topics, and how the the Scripture is the starting point for all true knowledge. Uh, chapter 5b is also called the primacy of Scripture, the place and power of God's Word in the Church of Jesus Christ. Chapter 6, we actually skipped it right state, but uh, it's the, we talked a little bit about it tonight, but very little, about the whole process. Actually, we touched on it a couple times tonight. The whole process of how the Scripture was canonized, uh, if you want a little introduction to that, there's a book by a guy named F.F. F. Bruce called um, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? And there's other books by him on the, the canonization of Scripture. If You, you should know, I think, I think Grudem goes into that a little bit in his systematic theology. You should know a little bit about that, how the Scripture came to be canonized. What's that? Oh, R.C. Sproul has a CD on that in the theology class that we do. That's right. So... That's important. Uh, then we did three kinds of philosophies of translation. That's something you should be able to do from your head. Actually, the very first Bible study I did with Anvesh uh, was after he'd come to, uh, well last year we used to have the my Bible study on Thursday nights at Wright State and, and the group Bible study on Tuesday, or the uh, whatever, main meeting, now we switched it around this year. But anyway, Anvesh and I went out every Thursday night with Nathan Hager, and I discipled Anvesh for about two hours after thir- Thursday night meetings, and we would go to Milano's Pizza because it was open late, which I had to repent of because I can't be eat. eating pizza at my age. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, so uh, it's a shame. There's no good restaurants you can go to after 10. A- Chipotle's not too bad, but anyway, um, the very first talk we had was about the three philosophies of scripture, three philosophies of translation of scripture. And one of his, because one of his issues, it came up because he said, I, I've read the Bible in Telugu. There are no good translations in Telugu. And I've asked some other people that that know Telugu and they all confirmed that the Telugu language does not have a really good translation like we have an abundance of in English. And so he, start, he said, I began to grow in the Lord more when I began to read the Bible in English, but he started with reading a paraphrase Bible. And um, I helped him understand, and then he moved to a dynamic equivalence, but I helped him understand why he wanted to read a literal equivalence, and he got an ESV study Bible, and he's grown tremendously just from switching the Bible he's reading out of. If you're not reading from what's called a uh, complete equivalence or literal equivalence approach to Scripture within English are primarily the New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, and the New King James Version. You should be studying the Bible out of one of those three. If you have an NAV, throw it away, get, get rid of it, and get a good Bible. Because dynamic equivalence translations should only be used as a supplement to a good translation. That's kind of important. So uh, then when you talk about Bible study tools, take them through. Like, make sure they know how to use BibleGateway.com and Biblia.com and that that kind of stuff. And definitely Bible Gateway and Blue Letter Bible. You, uh, You know, I'll actually teach people how to look up Greek words in the Blue Letter Bible. It's a piece of cake. Anyone can do it. Well, we're going to stop there for tonight because we're past time, and that's at least get, will get you started in using the Search the Scripture series for yourself or for discipling a young Christian or uh, if you're in the situation that Beth and Edwin are now in where they're starting a Bible study on Thursday nights at, at uh, Cedarville University. And one of the things you'll find out is that even at a Christian college, uh, most people have just read a little bit of Bible here and there. It's more of a proof text on preconceived ideas than it is this sit, read the whole Bible for yourself. And that leads to disaster. You, you, if there's anything you want to help them do is take their Bible study to a fruitful level, which in order for their Bible study to become fruitful, they need to read whole books of the Bible. They need to read the whole Bible. And they need to look for major themes and ideas of the Bible. Amen.